0: Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys.
1: Hello, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host for the Judgment Enforcement Hour. We're here to help all the victims of fraud, civil theft, embezzlement, contract disputes, divorce and estate matters, and God knows what other malfeasance and evil deeds that you may be the victim of. I'm here to bring you my 55 years of financial forensic research and case management skills to help people recover their losses and enforce their judgments. Speaking of judgments, would you believe that 80% of the civil judgments in the United States are never recovered that 's right when the judge awards you fifty thousand five hundred thousand, five million, or even fifty million because you 're the victim of whatever cause that you had to go to court for that 's right fifty eighty percent of the time you never get your money, although eighty percent failure rate for judgment enforcement is correct. I must report to you that it's just not right. It's not right for you to be able to not recover what the court has said is yours by granting you that judgment. Well, that's why I'm here, that's why I'm in business, and that's why I do not give up. That's why I've devoted the rest of my life to correct this horrible wrong in our society. Remember, it's not what you win, It's what you recover that counts. That's also why my first guest for the Judgment Enforcement Hour is my personal and professional opinion, one of the finest judgment enforcement attorneys in the United States. I'm pleased and honored to introduce to you my friend, longtime colleague in successful judgment enforcement, Andrew Quiet Esquire. Andy, welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Please tell our audience a little bit about your professional background and a little bit about the notorious background of you and me giving the bad guys hell. Andy, let's hear from you, well, my friend.
2: Joe, Joe, thank you very much. I'm just thrilled to be your guest on this show. Um, I got started... Practicing law 47 years ago when I went into practice with my then 85 year old grandfather who had practiced since 1909. And I had a tutelage much like Abraham Lincoln did, where I sat at the side of his desk for the first six months just absorbing things like a sponge. And it dawned on me that there are many areas of law that change over time, but debtor creditor is a very old area of the law. And in commercial matters, which is all you and I do, we don't do what they call consumer debt. In commercial matters, the law is pretty well settled and pretty stable. And that attracted me. Now, I say it's old and well settled. You know, there are some things that are as old as mankind and womankind, like debtors and creditors and tax collectors and prosecution and attorneys. We always right. have debtors and creditors with us. And we always have the dishonest debtor who wants to take advantage of the honest creditor. And so that attracted me, and I got into this work a long time ago, and I've been privileged to work with you over the decades on a number of really interesting cases. Um, and I'll let you sort of guide which one do you'd like to to get into or talk about, uh, although I know that what's probably on everyone's minds is why can't they collect their judgments, and what can you or what can I with you do that alters that equation?
1: Well, that's exactly right, Andy. Thanks for those initial comments. And audience, this is going to be your opportunity to call in to ask either Andy or me or both of us any questions about judgment enforcement or any related concerns that uh, you may have. Uh, Andy, I think perhaps we should start off talking about our uh, friend Freddie Fraudley and uh, all of the dastardly deeds he had to go through to protect himself for a few years from the bank that was uh, after him for a few million dollars until we uh, got hot on his tail. So you want to start with that, and I'll jump in periodically to...
2: Uh, You have a different viewpoint. This was a a case where who we call Freddie Fraudley uh, had borrowed, if that's the word, a couple million dollars from a national bank. And then he told the president of the bank he just couldn't afford to repay it. And the head of the bank, out of fiduciary duty and caution, uh, as I recall, asked you to do a preliminary investigation. And you found... A number of partnerships, corporations, and trusts that he had failed to disclose to his banker. At which point, the banker became incensed, and you and I met with him, and he basically said, uh, "Go develop this and see if you can get the money back." And as I that's recall, exactly right. Was we, something we, like-
1: No, I was just saying you're exactly right there. I found uh, 50 companies in our preliminary uh, research that this guy had formed to hide his assets in, and that's when I convinced the bank to let me bring you on board so we could go full bore. So go ahead.
2: Well, before we were done, we, we ended up getting some, you know, all kinds of assets all over the country from this guy. And we ended up, uh, this was one of those cases. These are the great cases where we end up getting 100 cents on the dollar if the client has the fortitude to hang in there and go do it. But it takes time. And you have to be able to exceed the debtor's pain tolerance. Now, I think there are, uh, I'd like to comment on why people, don't get recoveries more often and why they uh, end up in that 80% of uncollected judgments. Yes. Well, I think it starts with a a lack of knowledge. And it starts with a lack of knowledge not only by the creditor, who's already been taken advantage of and wronged and has done all kinds of work to get to the point of having a judgment. and, And you know the shock they go through after they get their judgment. You know, nothing happens. They don't. No one writes a check for them, and they also oh, usually go to lawyers who who don't understand this area very well. And so, you need a lack, you, you need knowledge of the law. You need to understand the target or the debtor. Uh, you need to know the debtor's organization, his methodology, and probably above all else, you have to have persistence and patience. Uh, these are custom crafted efforts uh when you get to these larger judgments um, and I just think you got to get enough information assembled in proper order, and this is what you're so good at uh where you can then array it in front of the debtor and you exceed when you exceed the debtor's pain tolerance that's when the debtor understands he has a business problem. And he needs to come to the table and get us out of his life by paying.
1: Well, that's absolutely right, Andy. And if you'll recall in this case, uh, Freddie came to us and said that, you know, I had been uh, on him to turn over all of the Persian rugs and antiques that he had in his mansion on the local country club here. And, uh, of course, he and I got on a first name basis after a year or so. And he said, Joe, I'd just love to give you those, but I had to give those to the new wife to get her to sign that doggone prenuptial agreement. And they just don't belong to me any any longer. So therefore, I can't, uh, contribute them toward a settlement. And, uh, well, you know, I,
2: well, you know, I remember Freddie Frogley was such a, so compassionate with that new wife that he had that several million dollar home that was titled in the name of his kid's trust, but he had reserved what they call a life estate for himself, meaning he could stay there his whole life, and he had reserved what they call a terminable life estate for his wife, which read that if either one of them filed for a divorce, her estate in that home terminated and she is out on the street. So that was the compassionate guy we went after there. And, uh, you know, when the pain got too great, he came to the table and the client got picked.
1: Well, if you'll recall, we had uh, subpoenaed uh, both his uh, bank records and his credit card charge slips from American Express and from the local bank that he had moved all of his accounts to. And in those charge slips, uh, I noted that uh, he had... uh, been paying American Express for a suite of rooms at Caesars Palace. And on that same charge card, uh, there were uh, three other uh, nice rooms that had been charged during that same period of time. And as I looked further at them, I noticed that there had been a, uh, several hundred dollars for flowers charged. And there was also a charge for a limousine. And I got to scratching my head and saying, boy, that sounds an awful lot uh, like a wedding. And uh, all these charges were about two months before the wedding that he and the new wife had had uh, in the lawn of their uh, mansion here on the golf course. So I contacted the uh, clerk's office in uh, Las Vegas, and sure enough, Uh, He had both a license and a certificate signed, and they had got married at uh, one of the uh, drive-in wedding chapels, although they didn't have a drive-in wedding. They did have a few people there, but they got married two months uh, before their wedding here in Denver, uh, and we had the uh, wedding certificates and so forth to prove that. So, uh, as I had the opportunity to explain to Freddie, that made his prenup a postnup, and it didn't hold water, and he had to give up all of those Persian rugs and all the antiques, which made New Wife very, very unhappy. And uh it was well, short- Well, you know, there's
2: something, there's something else that makes the wives unhappy, which I know you know only too well, Joe. When factual, this is all driven by facts. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. you develop and we have to present in an appropriate way to get a debtor's attention. And it, it seems when the debtor realizes uh that we're going to be deposing his old wife, new wife, any wife, and informing the wife about the debtor's mistresses, uh, and we're going to take the debtor's toys away. Uh, the debtors don't seem to like that. They—that's they, the sort of thing that gets their attention, and that combined with knowing where they've hidden their assets brings them to the table uh, once you exceed their pain threshold.
1: Well, that's exactly what happened in this case, and we could spend the rest of the hour talking about uh, Freddie and uh, his uh, malfeasance and the enlightenment that he had. But uh, I'll just close Freddie out by saying uh, that uh, if you were Carl, you and I got uh, served with subpoenas as we were going into court one day uh, by uh, a young lady, and uh, therefore I could not serve. Uh, Freddie with the subpoena that I had for him, and uh, we were in court to uh, ask the judge to order Freddie to take a physical exam because our bank had agreed uh, to fund a $2 million life insurance policy uh, on his life because they had a financial interest in his good health and uh, intended to uh, serve him with some documents related there too and we got in the courtroom uh couldn't serve him so when the judge took a break uh, i asked uh, his honor if i could approach the bench and he said certainly and i asked him if he would be kind enough to hand mr fraudley the papers that i had and he looked at him and he said yes i'd be pleased to mr fraudley please uh, approach the bench you've been served and I think that's the first time that uh, we ever got a judge to serve a subpoena in the courtroom. But it did get Freddie's attention. And uh, if you'll recall, before the date that he was ordered to appear for his physical exam for uh, the life insurance policy, uh, we made a 100 percent settlement with him. So I think we had
2: his attention. Well, I want – well, I wanted to send them to my uh, to a friendly proctologist for a physical exam, but we never got that far. So well, the uh, all right. Well, we that's just one of a number of cases you and I've dealt with uh in, in the past and on an ongoing basis. And um, yeah, you know what I've always noticed where I start with a potential client who has this problem. I always like to start by having them send me the judgment because, as you well know, they're not all created equal.
1: Well, that's true, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of language in that judgment that will either be very helpful to us or may slow the process down. Uh, go ahead and address well, that and I, for us, Andy.
2: Well, and I know you're always really. One of the first things you look at uh, is to see whether there's a provision in the judgment to recover uh, attorney's fees and all costs of enforcement and collection because uh, that increases the value of the judgment uh assuming there are assets you've identified and uh, you know uh, I've found over the years as you know other ways of increasing the value of a judgment, most of our cases seem to involve fraud, Joe, of course. and what they call fraudulent conveyances. And in some states, if there's a fraudulent conveyance, you can uh, recover the asset or recover a judgment against the person who got the asset, and you can get one and a half times the value of the asset in some places. The other thing I do is I, I bring charges of civil racketeering in conjunction with what we call a fraudulent conveyance suit, And when that occurs, I get trouble damages. And in addition, we get all kinds of injunctive relief that once it's a final order, we can record it or domesticate it or register it in any state of the United States. And any other state has to enforce it, even if they wouldn't do it under their own law. And this has real teeth in it that gets people's attention when you get to that point. that's the end game. That's not to be the front end of it, but it's what we look at. Just like we look at what do we do if they file bankruptcy and can we get them through bankruptcy? You know, you mentioned Freddie Frogley. I remember we had to call Freddie in one day and we had a cart full of notebooks. uh, And (laughs) we told Freddie that he, that he had to file bankruptcy. He really needed to do it because We were after him for $2 but there were another $30 million of creditors out there chasing him. But we also told Freddie he couldn't afford to file bankruptcy until he paid our client because of what we were in a position to impose upon him inside the bankruptcy court. So that's part of what we always look at in these cases.
1: Why don't you go back, Andy, to the civil racketeering. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that would uh, like to know how it is you can file that uh, within uh, judgment enforcement matter. And uh, just tell us about those provisions well, and sure. how we can make well, that happen.
2: So, you well, know, the. There's a federal statute called RICO, the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. And 30 or 40 years ago, the American Bar Association had a two-volume treatise on this statute calling it the ultimate weapon in civil litigation. Every state has a version of it at the state level. And for the first 10 years, this statute was on the books. Everyone said, well, this is just for the mafia or mafiosa. Uh, I'm not a racketeer. I'm just white-collar crime, if you can get me to admit that. It took 10 years before the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, it certainly includes mafiosa, but the words Congress used were far broader. And if you meet the terms of the words Congress used, you're going to be a racketeer. And so to be a racketeer, and, and it has a criminal side and a civil side, but to be a racketeer, you need to commit a number of predicate acts in conjunction with some other people. And that becomes your enterprise, and you're running a racketeering enterprise. Now, the most common acts that I look for for racketeering these days uh, are wire fraud, mail fraud, and securities fraud. And, you know, these days, if you send an email, that's a never- wire in interstate commerce. And that's where right. fraud, if it's tied into or related to other fraudulent or other prohibited conduct. And oftentimes when people have taken advantage of someone in a business investment, uh, it will implicate securities fraud. And so I, uh, this is something I always take a look at. And, uh, you know, you and I had a securities fraud case out in Fresno a number of years ago. Oh, yeah. Where you... I remember I was a younger lawyer, and you were in the room, and you'd hand me little note cards, and you gave me (laughs) one that had two pup pup tents on it at one point, because you were trying to tell me, in examining this person, I was being too tense.
1: That's right. And
2: you were absolutely absolutely right. But I remember we flew in and out of Fresno all summer long deposing people, and at one point we were deposing the CEO of that company. And he finally wanted to stop the proceeding. You remember that?
1: I do remember that we were out there for fifteen weeks, and when uh, court was over in the afternoon, and would go hit the swimming pool at the at the motel, it was still over a hundred degrees uh, water temperature. <laughs> it was uh, it was an interesting time, well, but I uh, well, I remember when that he, when he
2: interrupted us and stopped us, Joe. He said, Mr. Quiet, just stop this. Let's go off the record, which I almost never do, but I did in this instance, because I figured I could always go back on. He said, Mr. Quiet, I'm not a crook. Now, you know, we've heard that before. Um, But I I have to settle with you. You're accusing me of being a racketeer, and I'm a corporate farmer out here in the Imperial Valley in California, and whether I am or not, my business will not withstand me being labeled a racketeer. And oftentimes, so long as you have the facts and you aren't just, you know, shoving hot air at people, sooner or later they will come to that understanding.
1: All right, and it's time for us to take a break, so... Uh, We'll go to uh, commercials and be back in just a few minutes.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just 2495 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at Financial dot com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at Financial dot com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Well, welcome back. Uh, Any of you folks out there listening that have got uh, questions about uh, anything we're talking about or you have any concerns or want to talk about your case, uh, please give us a call. That number again is 866-472-5790. Andy, I think we should uh, give these folks a little uh, lesson in the economics of uh, fraud. And I got my lesson really uh, from our mutual friend, Um, Frankie O, who Frankie had been a uh, professional fraudster and a very, very high level and uh, was caught by the federal government and decided to turn uh, state's witness Uh, Against his conspirators, so he can, uh, his co conspirators, that is, and he went ahead committing fraud and feeding the government information at the same time. And uh, as that kind of wrapped up, he continued his fraud activity uh, across the country. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, over a period of time, Uh, get three of those cases, uh, and the first one uh, I brought you in, we uh, worked the case and uh, finally had a heart-to-heart with uh, him, and he just decided to pay 100% and go on about his business. Uh, A couple of years later, we had a second one. I brought you in on that one, uh, a little quicker in the game we sat down and had a heart-to-heart with him about where we were and what was going to happen and we got a hundred percent recovery there and when the third case came along uh, as i recall we decided rather than uh, spend a lot of our clients money uh, pursuing uh locating the assets uh we just invited uh freddie to uh uh or frankie to have breakfast with us at one of the country club restaurants on a Saturday morning. Uh, you want to tell him a little bit about how that conversation went?
2: I am. Are you, are you uh, thinking of the, his description of the pyramid of his business, Joe?
1: Well, just, uh, yeah, how he told us how he made his well, business decisions sure. to settle cases.
2: Of course. So he said, I'm going to describe for you what I do, because you guys are pretty persistent, and someday I may have to make a deal with you, but we're not there yet. He says, what I do is like a big pyramid. Now, it's not a pyramid like a Ponzi scheme, but this is a pyramid that describes the people I extract money from. The broadest group of people is at the bottom of the pyramid. It's the widest, it's the thickest. If I rip them off, they never even know they've been ripped off. They're oblivious. So that's good. I go to the next level. Up yeah, one and then don't have to pay anything narrower. back on those. Yeah. I you go to the did. next level. They may suspect something's wrong, but they don't do anything about it. And then I go to the next level. Uh, they know something's wrong and they may file a suit. Well, big deal. They started a lawsuit. I have a thick skin. They may not complete their lawsuit for all kinds of reasons and I can delay them for a long time. Now I go up the pyramid again to the next level and it's starting to thin out a little. These people get a judgment. Whoopsie do. As you know... Just because you got a judgment doesn't mean a thing because I got a good skin and I'm not going to pay it. Then we go up to the next level. It's still getting thin. The air is starting to thin out. Now I get people who start to do post-judgment stuff, but they don't know what they're doing. and So I run them around in circles, and after a while they fall away. Then we go up to the next level Now I'm getting to people like the two of you, and you're just a real pain. But the question is, is how big a pain? You guys know what you're doing. And so you're going to keep dragging me in here and extracting information and developing information. And then we get to the point where every seven years, I can file bankruptcy. And, gee, how long has it been, guys, since my last bankruptcy? I think it's about six and a half years. And if I file bankruptcy, I have a 50% probability, at least, of wiping out your judgment in bankruptcy. Now, you can fight it, and you might prevail. But it's going to take you 18 months or so, and during that time, you can't come after me, and I'm still doing deals. But if you prevail and you pick up the trail again with a fresh hunting license, you get a start over, and we renew our social relationship here. And if you keep at me after a while, I might decide that I need to do a deal and cut you in on it to get you paid off. So I'll put together a transaction where I'm going to relieve someone else of their assets and we'll just use some of those assets to get you or your client paid. And that's what I do. Now, we're not at that point yet, guys, because I haven't filed my current bankruptcy. So after we do when we go through that, if it's the game's still going on, uh, we'll have a conversation maybe. i just never heard anyone describe what they do that blatantly and that candidly and that honestly.
1: Well, he did have uh, a straight face while he was telling us that. Um, and as I recall, as he was drawing his pyramid, uh, the lowest level started out with the uh, of the people uh, never knew what happened. The next 25% thought they knew what happened. Uh, 20% of them would try to do something. Uh, 15% would actually uh, get a case, but their attorneys were never successful in recovering. And that last 5% that he was dealing with us on, uh, he said that uh, when he got to that small tip of the pyramid, that he just settled those and paid them because the 5% was the cost of doing business. And he said that with a straight face, and uh, that was his business model, and he made a 95% profit off of every one of his embezzlement cases until we started giving him uh, grief. And as it got down to that last one, we didn't even have to give him any grief. We just told him we're back, Freddie, of uh, uh Frankie
2: and uh, yeah, that
1: one was yeah, Frankie. yeah, the, the, the uh, other one, yeah, and uh, so he just paid up because five percent was the cost of doing business.
2: Well, so uh, Joe, you know, when we start into one of these, most of the time, uh, most of my clients have never been through this before, uh, a few have, but most of the time they haven't, and and so they the, the clients need to be educated. And they need to understand the process, the length of time it takes, what it costs. And it takes a lot of persistence and patience and perseverance. Um, And I know you're always so good at saying we're going to proceed on good news and stop on bad news. And, you know, when a case is really going, we'll talk to a client every week about the assets we're focusing on and whether it's worth going after or not or are there is there enough equity in an asset and what are the hurdles to get to it well uh, that's you're so that's the guys.
1: very that's the very reason Andy that when these cases come to me uh, before we ever contact you uh, I spend uh, anywhere from Uh, a couple of weeks to six or eight weeks in some cases, doing our pre-litigation due diligence, which is uh, a significant amount of the work that would be done post-judgment normally. But when you go post-judgment, the client is already pouring out significant amounts of money uh, on legal fees and cost and so forth. But for a small fraction of that, uh, I can do my preliminary work and determine whether or not there is a high probability that there are assets out there that have a net value making them worth going after, Are uh, that there is a pain level associated with them that they can enjoy uh, the privilege of working with you. So uh, once we get that, uh, then... If we're convinced that it's worth doing, and the the client is convinced it's worth doing, uh, then we charge them a flat fee to document that and give you the tools that you need to get started with. So, we've got uh, about five minutes here before the next break, I believe, Andy, so you want to go ahead and uh, address that a little bit, and we'll go to that break in four minutes.
2: Well, I think it's just essential that, that you know, and you're good at this, you know, client service and client education and client involvement and participation
0: on an ongoing
2: basis. Sometimes uh, a client will come in and think they can just deposit their problem on your desk and leave, and that's the end of it, and that's not how these cases work. Because uh, our clients who have been uh, taken advantage of so severely and defrauded, often are a wealth of information that they don 't even know or understand about the debtor or the debtors' organization, in addition, there are certain decisions that you as a, a forensic fraud examiner uh, and me as a lawyer uh, it's not proper for us to make certain business decisions. They're the clients. That's right. And our job is to put the client in a position uh, to make informed business decisions on an ongoing basis. Because it's the client's life, it's the client's judgment, um, and uh, it's the client who's been harmed.
1: Exactly, and if we can supply them with enough uh, documented information, if they can make an informed decision, uh, then they're much more comfortable in allowing us to go ahead and do those things that we we do so we 've got a couple of minutes here uh, i 'll just uh, say that uh, you know as we're as we 're doing these things, it is a building block, and not only are we looking for the hard facts that we can document and build on to bring the pressure and the heat that you were discussing a while ago. But another thing that I would like for us to uh, chat about after the break is uh, I'm usually as interested in the debtor or potential debtor's uh, psychographics as I am their demographics. We know the demographics are age, address, income, uh, lifestyle, and so forth, but the psychographics are what make them tick, and how they think, and how their minds work, and what they're fond of, and what they uh, have real interest in, and that oftentimes leads us right up to where we need to be to uh, put additional pressure on them uh, very quickly, and uh, we can talk about a good example of that when we get back, because it is now time to go to the final break. So we will do that right now and be back in about three.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just twenty four ninety five with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Okay, Andy, we're back. And uh, before the break, I was talking about... Uh, the importance of psychographics in uh, judgment enforcement, and I, I have one case history I'd like to share with the uh, audience here. Uh, this was a another judgment that was in for over a uh, million dollars, and uh, the the uh, debtor had been chased for quite some time unsuccessfully. And as I was doing my preliminary research on him, I. Uh, found that he was uh, I found that he was uh, getting a hunting license every year in Alaska and uh, that he was uh, a big game hunter and uh, I felt like he was probably a trophy hunter So I had uh, found one of his former employees, because as we all know, we can't talk to current employees, but I I interviewed one of his former employees uh, to confirm that, and he said, oh yeah, this guy lives and breathes for uh, the trophies, and he has a beautiful home uh, with a large family room that are full of trophies, and uh, he has at least three or four social events a year. Uh, Some are charity money raisers, and others are just uh, business functions and so forth at his home but his real deal is he can show off all of his trophies to his friends and acquaintances so we arranged uh through some other information we had and i'll not uh, not bore you with the details there except to say that we got a writ of execution from the court to allow us to go with the sheriff's department to raid his home to take uh, all of the non-exempt valuable assets out of his house and sell them at the sheriff's sale. So we always take a a locksmith and a moving van and a photographer uh, on these raids, and uh, we never know what we're going to need. So we went to this guy's home, uh, had the sheriff, of course, knock on his door to start with, and uh, they always go in and uh, recover uh, any weapons are there because we don't ever get a shot into a shootout with them. And in this case, of course, they got all these hunting weapons. And uh, this uh, had the debtor's attention, to say the least. And he was ranting and raving. So the sheriff explained to him that he could stay during the course of this execution of the court order. However, it would be necessary for him to sit in that easy chair over in the corner of the family room. And should he decide that he had to get up and interject himself into the legal work that was going on, he would be, uh, placed in custody and put in jail. So he could sit there quietly and observe, or he could go to jail. It was up to him. So he decided he would, uh, sit quietly and watch. So I told the movers, I said, okay, first thing I want to do is we have this, uh, white polar bear that it was mounted in a standing position with his right paw up in the air above his head. I would say this guy was probably uh, close to seven feet tall from the ground up to the end of his paw. And beautiful, beautiful mount. And uh, so I told the movers, I said, all right, guys, I want to take this polar bear first. We want to wrap him in bubble wrap. You've got some crates here. Be sure that he's well crated, well-protected, tied down. Uh, when you get him in the moving van, then when you get back in, I want to take, and I pointed out the mounts that were on the, above the fireplace. I said I want to first take the moose, and then we'll take the caribou. Uh, then we'll take this animal, and we'll take that animal. Uh, and then I want to get this uh, full-mounted sheep, uh, mountain goat and a sheep that he had. And this guy jumped up, and he said, Mr. Dickerson, Mr. Dickerson, could I please speak to you, sir? And I said, well, certainly. And my guys were busy doing their bubble wrapping. And I said, what can I do for you? And he said, well, what's it going to take to get you off of my uh, posterior?" And I said, well, look, I'm a very reasonable man. I wish you no ill will at all. In fact, I wish you every success in the world because you need to understand you and I are business partners. And from this point forward, every dollar you make the rest of your life, I'm taking part of it from my client. So let's get out there and make some money, partner. Well, he saw no humor in that at all. And uh, so he said, well, isn't there some way we can settle this thing? And I said, well, uh, yeah, uh, probably so. What did you have in mind? He said, uh, well, I can I can come up with most of the cash if there's any way I can, you know, there's quite a bit of uh, uh, legal fees here and interest, and uh, if I could get some kind of consideration off of that, I could get you most of your money. Well, I had prearranged with our client uh, to forgive uh, all of the interest, uh, the legal fees, and up to 10% of the principal uh, if we could get money within 30 days. And I was authorized to do this by the client. So I said, well, you know, I will, I will go out and make a phone call to my client and see what I can do. But I certainly can't promise you anything. So I went out in the yard and uh, played fetch with his dog for a few minutes and spent a little time and came back in. And I said, well, I tell you what, I think that I probably can get uh, these legal fees cut, but the client really needs to get that interest. He said, well, if there's anything you can do to help me on that. And I said, well, when can you get the money? And he said, I can have it for you, uh, within uh, 10 days. And I said, all right, that's fine in 10 days. And if we'll forgive the interest and this guy came up with a hundred percent of the principle of the judgment in 10 days and, uh, we settled the case right there and, uh, That's what I mean by the importance of psychographics. I see that we have a caller on the line here from Utah. It's Alan. Uh, Can you put Alan through to us, and we'll take his question or comments. Hello, Alan.
2: Hello, Joe. Yes. Uh, Well, I've heard you talk before, and and the topic is fascinating. Uh, And your stories are fantastic, but I deal at a much lower level of of enterprise, and so is there... You know, any hope for a ten or twenty thousand dollar judgment? Uh or is it just too expensive to try and enforce?
1: Well, in most cases if you have a judgment of that size, you oftentimes did you get your judgment in small claims court?
2: Uh this this is uh no, this would be in a in a bankruptcy or a uh foreclosure court.
1: So it's a district level court case?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I would suggest that, uh, do you still have an attorney working for you? No. No. Well, uh, you're you, going...
2: Forgive, forgive me. You, you said it was foreclosure. Were you foreclosing on real estate? Foreclosing on real estate.
1: Was there no, any I'm equity in, in the most, property? And No equity in the property. Okay. So you have a judgment for the deficiency?
2: Yes. So, so small judgments can be difficult, uh, and you can't justify for small judgments uh, the kind of efforts that you've heard us talking about. But there are things you can do. Uh, You can use writs of garnishment. You can usually, for low dollar costs, find out where someone's working if they are. Uh, If you know of anyone who owes the debtor money, you can garnish them. And garnishment, in one form or another, is essentially available in almost every state of the country.
1: Do you know where the guy works? and uh, they
2: quickly change bank accounts, right? Well, uh, oftentimes they do. Now, uh, this is where you start to get into more specialized knowledge. You can get specialized court orders, but you're going to need a knowledgeable judgment enforcement attorney to, to get those for you. Oh, okay. Okay. So, All right. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> cost and benefit.
1: Exactly, yes, sir. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. I wish we had better okay. news for you on those, but they're they're it, it's sometimes more difficult to collect on a small judgment than it is on a much larger one. You just have more okay. more opportunity and more things to work with. All right, Andy, I completed my story there on the uh, psychographics. Uh, you had a point you wanted to make on another case, so go ahead.
2: Well, I, I, you know, what I think I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, I'd like to comment for a moment on fraudulent conveyances, because okay. we've mentioned the word, but we haven't really discussed it. And I think it's a starting place for people who have been ripped off to start to figure out, is there anything there worth looking at or talking to someone about. A fraudulent conveyance, uh, there are what we call badges of fraud. And if you have a transaction that has some of these badges of fraud, uh, it can taint the transaction. Sometimes the presence of one badge of fraud is enough. Sometimes the presence of seven or eight badges of fraud is not enough. And so what makes a badge of fraud. If I convey something for less than adequate consideration or no consideration, that's a fraudulent conveyance. If I give it away, I say I sold it, but I still control it, that can be something. If it's a transaction with close business friends or associates or family, that can taint it. Uh, there are, depending on the jurisdiction, anywhere from 9 to 11 badges of fraud. And once you, and you can just Google it and see what they are. Uh, you can go to my website and there's a whole discussion of them in a video. But, uh, the, uh, if you find those, then you have grist for the mill. And that, and it's the presence of that that starts to give you leverage against the debtor. Alan called in a minute ago on uh, you know i don 't mean to to minimize it. a twenty or thirty thousand dollar judgment can be significant for people um, and so that 's where you need the art and If he can find examples of fraudulent conveyance there, he has something to talk to that debtor about um, and so fraudulent conveyances can be very important and open the door to a recovery so it 's worth uh, looking at the debtor. And this is where the client, the creditor, will oftentimes have information about the debtor and how he runs his affairs.
1: Right, Andy, we've got about two more minutes, and I'm going to have to wrap this up, but please go right ahead.
2: Well, I think that's just a, sort of an introduction to to fraudulent conveyance. And uh, I, I really think that, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's where a a layperson person is where a, a creditor can start to say, you know, gee, that's what I see this guy doing. He does that sort of thing. Uh, the example I always give, uh, I live outside of Aspen, Colorado, uh, several miles from there, but there was a debtor there who once uh, claimed he didn't have anything, but he controlled everything. And we were interviewing him over at the airport there. And uh, we knew he used to have an aircraft, and he said, oh, I don't have that plane, but you, you see that Gulf Stream, that's landing right there? Uh, that's coming in for me because I just, you know, I just asked for a ride, you know, a couple hours ago, and, you know, it just shows up whenever I need a ride, so I'll see you later, guys. Well, that's control of an asset that this guy used to own or control, and uh, that combined with other circumstances, gives you a fraudulent conveyance. So with that, you can go get the asset, or if he conveyed it to someone else, you can also get another judgment against the person he conveyed it to. And that opens up another source of assets for recovery.
1: Absolutely. Well, Andy, thank you so much. This has uh, been a great session. I'm sure all of our guests out here would agree that uh, it's been most informative I appreciate your help uh, as always and uh, I want to ask the uh, audience to be sure and tune in next week uh, on Wednesday for the Judgment Enforcement Hour where our guest will be Dave Marchant. Uh, Dave is an investigative financial journalist and owns and operates Offshore Alert which is a news and conference organization that specializes in financial intelligence and investigations internationally uh, with an emphasis on high-value cross-border financial uh, transactions conducted in highly confidential uh, offshore jurisdictions. Uh, Since it was launched in 1997, uh, Offshore Alert has exposed more than 175 investment frauds and money laundering schemes, Uh, some of them, many of them while they were still in progress and has contributed to the early collapse of many of those. uh, Dave has helped law enforcement regulators and asset recovery specialists uh, hold these responsible uh, parties accountable for their crimes. some of the Joe, froster- thank
2: you, and congr- congratulations on your show. I'm sure you're going to teach uh, people an awful lot about how they can get the money they're entitled to, uh, and I think it's just a tremendous service. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much, Andy. Appreciate you being here. Uh, one other thing I wanted to tell you about uh, Mr. Marchant with the offshore group, that he works all over the uh, islands and the uh, Uh, asset protection jurisdictions, and he has uh, been sued by several of the plaintiffs that uh, he has uh, broken up their operation, but uh, it turns around on a lot of them. There's one guy that got a 17-year conviction uh, for that, so be sure, uh, listen to Mr. Marchant, but don't sue him because you may end up having to uh, watch him from inside the prison. Thank you so much. Uh, Look forward to speaking with you folks next week on the Judgment Enforcement Hour. And please remember, it's not what you win, it's what you recover that
0: counts. Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.